This week I, I read of a young couple who met actually somewhere outside the Mediterranean Sea. Warren and Marion are their names. Warren Metzger lived an unordinary life, and so did Mar Marion. Marion born in uh, Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. Talk about little America, north of Pittsburgh, middle of no place. 1940, she gets her pilot's license. Think about that. 1940. The war breaks out. She becomes a, a developer of a propeller that will be used in World War II. He becomes a pilot for World War II. They don't even know each other at this point. They're just young, young bucks, young Americans. After the war is done, they become part of the Berlin Airlift. And uh, in the Berlin Airlift, you know anything about what happened after the war is that sections of Berlin were being starved out, and so uh, we would fly over and drop supplies, food and supplies. It was a wonderful thing. But they would meet somewhere outside the Mediterranean, I'm not sure where, Cyprus or Eritrea, in one of those countries. And by that point, no, by 1948, they would have been hired by the Alaskan Airlines, which was a small uh, airplane company out of not the state of Alaska, but the territory of Alaska. Alaska wasn't a state yet. So this is a small airline. And that's how they met. And the president of Alaskan Airlines took compassion on a people group that had been ostracized and pushed around and become nomadic because no one wanted them. And so they would push them off their property and push them off their property. And finally, in 1948, the Jews were able to etch out a little piece of dirt on the eastern shores of the Mediterranean Sea, and they founded a land called Israel. The problem with it was there were no Jews there because there had been this horrible holocaust, and Jews had scattered all over the world, wherever they could go. And frankly, most countries didn't want Jews. Well, the president of Alaskan Airlines said, um, we'll be a part of getting Jews to Israel. And so he commandeered some of the planes, and, and that's how... Warren and Miriam met. They flew Yemenite Jews, uh, get that, Jews living in Yemen who were nomadic, had been pushed around living in tents uh, for maybe the last couple of hundred years. They've been living in tents and now they're going to put them on an airplane. These people have never been on airplanes before and going to fly them to Israel, wherever that happens to be. Oh, I didn't tell you either. They're going to get shot at while they're... <laughs> because the, uh, the uh, neighboring countries don't like this new country, Israel. And so think about it, the fuel, the maintenance, the logistics, the flight path, the safety, all of that. And this young couple meets, falls in love, and gets married. And they become part of what would be called Operation Magic Carpet. And they'd be part of a project in that operation of flying over 40,000 Jews into Israel. Wow. Talk about an unordinary life. So when you think about yourself and you think about how bad your life is because your cold water just isn't as cold as it used to be, or the traffic here is terrible, or whatever it is that you and I complain about, right? Think about it for a moment. 1948, people getting on a large can that's going to go into the sky to a country we've never even heard of before. Think about that. This is an unordinary life. But you know what? Um, Warren and Marion would, would marry, they'd have children, and then grandchildren. 
by the way, they just died a decade ago, 2009. They would have family and all that. He would become vice president of the Alaskan Airlines eventually. I mean, wonderful couple, wonderful family. But the unordinariness of their life and the mark of their life was etched in 1948 with Operation Magic Carpet. I, I tell you that to say this. You do not know when God will put the mark on you to do something that your generation will know. You don't even know it's coming. And that's our story of Esther. You don't even know the day it's coming. It's so unordinary. And God has the unbelievable, not only task, but the unbelievable delight to make that turn in the sky for you. I, I'm reminded of the words of, again, Reverend Martin Luther King. No one really knows why they are alive until they know what they die for. Until you, you really know what, what really, really matters in life. Race plays a part in Esther's story, and we've seen in the recent weeks, in the times of, in life of Esther, here's a, a young girl born in a foreign land, never really knew her home country. Her parents die. Uh, her cousin Mordecai is a generation older than her, and he says, I'll take you on, and so he adopts her. So now he's cousin, but he's also dad, kind of Uncle Mordecai now. He becomes the father figure. They live like former slaves, barely getting by. They don't even want to be noticed. They want to be unnoticed, and they can't help but be noticed. The king of Persia, where they're living, which is a huge empire, was the king of Babylon, now it's king of Persia. It's a huge piece of property. That king gets ticked at his wife. How many of you have been, had uh, yourself been ticked at your wife? Good, no one here, good. How many wives have been ticked at the king? Yes, all the hands go up. Well, he's ticked at his wife. He, he kicks her off the island. You know, he just says, I don't want you to be queen anymore. He dumps her. But after a while, he goes, I really would like a queen. And his assistants say, we'll get you a queen. You've got a huge, you got 127 provinces around to find a beautiful young maiden somewhere. So they line up a bunch, perhaps hundreds. Esther gets picked out of the hundreds to show up before the king and they give beauty treatments. This thing goes on for a year. There's no way she's going to get picked. I mean, it's less than one-tenth of one percent chance she's going to get picked. Guess who gets picked? Esther. She becomes the queen. She, and she doesn't, she doesn't have the guts to say, hey, king, I'm not Persian. I'm Jewish. You don't really want me. He just says, no, I want you. And he takes her and the number two guy in the country is a guy by the name of Haman. And he hates this guy, Mordecai. He hates the cousin who's the father figure to Esther. Mordecai works outside the, the palace at the gate, and he probably circles the gate often just to check in on this girl that he's responsible for. He feels really responsible since her parents are gone. But Haman hates Mordecai. That that kind of thickens the plot, doesn't it? Since he hates Mordecai, he wants to get rid of him. And while he's at it, I'll just get rid of all the Jews, he thinks. And so he sets out to have a law developed that the king will just sign off on. And, and this, the king will sign off. Let's get rid of the Jews. We don't need them anymore. So they, they set a day out there that they're all going to kill all the Jews they know. You think persecution's new in our generation or just a generation ago? No, this has been going on since time began. Mordecai finds out about it. He's in mourning, he's in sackcloth and ashes, and Esther finds out. 
Mordecai says, what's the matter? We're going to die. You got to go talk to the king. She says, I can't talk to the king. I could get in bad trouble. He could kill me. He, she, he says, you're going to die anyway. You might as well die trying. Don't, don't think that you're going to get away with this. She says, I, I don't know. I don't think I can. And he said, look, we're going to get deliverance. God is going to give us deliverance, and he may use you. But if he doesn't use you, he'll use someone else. You know, it's that way with us, too. God's going to get what God wants done. It's just a matter of whether you're going to be part of the story or not. So I, personally, I want to be part of the story. I know God's going to show up on earth and do some wonderful things. I just want to be there to see them. Don't you? I just want to, I want to see life change in people. Why? Because that's the God stuff happening. It's a great lesson for us all. Mordecai ends his whole statement by saying to Esther, you know, I, I don't know why you're here. I, I never, I, you're, you're a beautiful girl, but there's plenty of beautiful girls out there. I don't know why the king picked you as the queen. I just know you're in a spot, you're in a time, you're in a place you could speak and save a whole people group. You were made for this. You were born for such a time as this, he says. Chapter 4, verse 14. She hesitates because she's a former slave. She's, her self-esteem is low. Her workload is high. And that's the way it is with all, all the former slaves. That's why, that's why we're not even sure why, but we, we think that's why God's name isn't even mentioned in the whole book of Esther. Be, why? Because you, you use his name, but it's an embarrassment. All the godly people have left. They've gone to Israel. Just this, this, just this small leftover crew left. It's, it's not, there's no dignity to this at all. But there's a greater action taking place than what we can see because there's actually a spiritual element to this. You see, Satan is out to do away with Jews. Why? Because God has chosen the Jews as his chosen people, and that's where this redeemer, savior, king is going to come from. Satan knows if I can get rid of the Jews, I, I get rid of the pipeline that's going to save the world. So there's a spiritual element to this too. It happens even today. God does this with Christians. That's why there's persecution around the world to this day of Christians. Why? Because if we can extinguish the, the, the gospel message in parts of the world, that part of the world stays clueless to the good news and redemption that Jesus provides. So the situation's overwhelming. And, and, and so those overwhelming moments, let me just encourage you, those could be the moments you could pull in close to the Lord or you could just shut down. And that's where we either shut down and complain, murmur to ourselves, Anybody else murmur to themselves? Three or four of us, yes. We talk to ourselves. It's okay to talk to yourself. When you're losing arguments with yourself, that's when you need to stop. But God has a bigger plan. He wants us to draw in close. He wants to draw close to me, and I'll draw close to you. You seek me with all your heart, he says elsewhere in the scripture. Because he's out for something good, but th this seems so not good. And here's the moment of truth, Esther chapter 5. Esther says, okay, I'll, I'll go approach the king, but I'm telling you, she says to Mordecai, it's as if her finger's pointing out the window, you better have the, our people pray and fast. Dang it, you can hear that. Because I could die if this doesn't go well. <laughs> so they have a three-day three day fast that goes on. Chapter 5, verse 3. The king asked, what do you want? So he walk, she walks in and he raises his iron rod, holds it out and says, I, I want to go to kill you. You come here unannounced, I could do that. She touches it as a 
moment of respect, bowing to the king. He says, what would you like, Esther? He was just met with pleasantness. Get that, verse 3. What is it, Queen Esther? What's your request? Even up to half the kingdom, I will give you. Now, Wanda and I have been married for a long time, but when she enters the room, I don't say to her, what do you want, hon? I'll give you half of everything I have. <laughs> and she would go, yeah, half of what? We don't have that much. Now that I think about it, it's not that big of a deal. But think about it. He, he's just met with this unannounced guest, and he goes, I'll, I'll, I'll give you whatever you want. He's happy to see her. She's obviously been a delight to him before. She's not been a burden. This is important in the storyline. Verse 4, if it pleases the king, she says, let the king together with Haman come to, to a banquet. I, I prepared a dinner for you. She's no fool. On her way to the, a man's heart, it's through his stomach. So she, she prays, she fasts, she's serious about this. This just raises the awareness level of her own sensitivity before the Lord. But before she makes the request, she prepares a meal, and she's not standing by passively. She's not just praying and saying, okay, God, you just do whatever, because I'm not going to do anything. No, she's actively involved in the process with God. Here's the deal, folks. Sometimes we want God to do it all, and we just want to stand by. And sometimes that happens in Scripture, but not real often. Uh, have you ever been waiting for someone? Have you ever been waiting for someone, and you're going, hey... Let's go. And then later, you get in the car, you go, I've been waiting. And then they say to you, I've been waiting for you. Have you ever had this? I was ready to go to uh, leave to go to lunch after church, but you kept talking. I only talked because I was just waiting for you to finish. Well, you were talking, so I talked. No, no, I'm not going to talk. Why? I'm hungry. There are times when you're waiting on God, and God says, uh, I'm waiting on you. So we want to partner with God, trust him completely, trust him and be faithful in our trust of him, which means I cooperate with him step by step. Get this, Abraham, when he went up the mountain, um, he took his son with him and God provided a lamb, but he knew, he knew this was an act of worship. Moses, he was told when God was about to part the waters, he said, Moses, uh, hold up your arms. It's the least you could do. Joshua, when the walls come down around Jericho, he had to march. They had to cooperate with God. Ruth, when she was about to meet Boaz, the, the love of her life, the redeemer, she's out gleaning in a field. When Jesus fed the 5,000, he only did it with the contributions that were given. Do you get this? People, uh, he's saying, I, I want you to have, to give me what you do have. And they go, well, it's not much. I know it's not much, but I'll work with what you give me. So the next time God challenges you to do something extraordinary, understand this. He'll want what you do have in your hand. So you trust him and put it, your trust into motion and walk with him and not be paralyzed by fear, but rather walking with him in faith. So you see, God is interested in not only what you believe, but he wants to know what you believe and what you are willing to put into action with what you believe. So that's when you really, really believe it. So she says, uh, let's have a banquet. Let's have dinner. And, oh, bring your buddy, Haman. And she, she probably doesn't like Haman because she's heard the stories from Mordecai. Haman hates me. I hate him. Let's bring him to dinner. And she's thinking, I want the enemy on my turf. 
I need the king in good mood, but I want Haman there to hear this too. Verse 6, so while they're drinking wine, the king asked her, now what is your petition? It'll be given to you. And what's your request? Here it is again, even up to half the kingdom. Wow. Verse 7, Esther replies, my petition my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, if it pleases the king to grant my petition, fulfill my request. What is it? She says, come tomorrow, you and Haman, come tomorrow to another banquet. What? To another banquet. I'll prepare for you then, and then I'll answer your question. Okay, we've eaten, and I, I like your food, Esther, and I'll come back again. I'll, I'll probably be hungry again. But what do you want? What's going on here? The suspense is almost too much. It's a cliffhanger that we don't, we're thinking we don't really need. But God is in the timing of all this. Get this. And this is a key, important thing to keep in mind. Haman left happy. He left engaged with Esther, going, I am in favor not only with the king, but with Esther. He went home and he told his wife, Honey, I had a great day. You're never going to believe what happens. I, number one, I'm wealthy. Chapter five, he says. We're loaded. I can buy anything I want. I can buy favors. <laughs> I, I just offered the king a load of money just so we could get rid of the Jews. And he's going, yeah, we'll sign that. Law. He says, I have favor with the king. So not only do I have money, but we have kids. I, and then he says, not only does the king love me, but the king does what I want. I have favor with the king. And, and now the queen likes me. She fed me. It was a great meal. Out of all the whole kingdom, only one other guy got to go to the banquet with the king and it was me your husband Haman this guy's so puffed up full of pride he's just plain bragging he says the only thing I don't like is on the way home I saw Mordecai boy I can't as stinking Jew can't stand him verse 13 all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the gate Man, he says, I just hate him. Don't like him. He says, I got, I got money, I got power, I have influence, I got everything, but I don't have respect of that one guy. I want to get rid of him. His wife, Zerus, verse 14, and all the friends who were in the house said to them, have a pole set up, reaching to the height of 50 cubits. A cubits about a foot and a half. Uh, uh, this, this pole is about 75 feet high. If you're not sure what that is, that's a seven-story building. It's a big pole. So his wife, Zerus, says, have a pole set up, 50 cubits, 75 feet high. Ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. This is the wife. So when we talk about women being sweet and lovable, <laughs> it just ain't so. <laughs> and if you see your wife in the backyard, like sharpening the edges of a two by four, you need to go away for a day. And then she says, then go to the banquet, enjoy yourself. And I, I, So get out a pole that you're going to impale him on, go to the banquet, eat the queen's food, and then you can ask the king anything because he'll be in a good mood. Sounds like a good plan. And this, what are we going to do with this? This is the way he thinks. What are we going to do with this guy? Mordecai, this ne'er-do-well, good-for-nothing, worthless guy. 
I'll, I'll crush him, I'll despise him, I'll humiliate him, and at the end of the day, we're going to kill him. That's the way the chapter ends. No doubt Mordecai went to bed, and one of his buddies woke him and said, Mordecai, Haman, he's up to no good. How would you sleep? How would you sleep? Chapter 6. Here's the God-inspired insomnia. That night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered a book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. So stop there. He can't sleep, so he says, what would put me to sleep? Oh yeah, stories about minutes from what we do with business sessions. Right, that would put me to sleep, right? Have you read this? The first part of the four I mentioned, read your document of your house or your property or your, some legal document. He's going, read me some legal documents, that'll put me to sleep. So he does that, verse 2. It was found recorded that Mordecai had exposed, this happened earlier in the story, uh, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway. Who was at the doorway? Mordecai was there. And who had conspired to assassinate Xerxes. And what honor recognition was given to Mordecai? Because Mordecai was the one who tattled on him, and those guys were killed because of it, because they were trying to assassinate the king. He goes, what did we ever do for Mordecai? And they responded, nothing. We should have done it that day or the next day. We should have awarded him, but we didn't. Well, that can't happen. This, so we, we have to recognize him. That guy saved my life. And in the morning, guess what? Verse 4, the king says, who's in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the court. He'd just gotten done putting up the pole. He'd been up in the night putting up the pole. And he's going to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai. Verse 5, his attendant said, it's Haman. Number two, he's standing out in the court. He says, bring him in here. And, and he asked Haman, verse six, what should be done for the man who the king delights to honor? And, you know, Haman is so full of himself. He's thinking, hey, this is my day. And so he says, I know what to do. Haman thought to himself, who is there the king would rather honor other than me? Verse seven, so he says to the king, well, I would have the king and delights in the honor, he says, I'd have him uh, get a royal robe, verse 8. And I'd put that robe on him, and then I'd have a horse, and I'd have him ride that horse, and I'd put a royal crest placed on his head. And he says, and I'd let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. I'd get someone to lead him around town. I'd, put, I'd decorate the horse, I'd decorate the guy. And then while you're doing that, he says, then I would say, this is the man whom the, the king delights in. This is the guy you need to be like, because... He's got it going on. End of verse 9. And the king says to Haman, that's a great idea. You need to do that. Look back at the text now, verse 10. Get the robe and the horse and do just what you suggested. Do it for Mordecai the Jew. What? You've got to be kidding me. In theatrical terms, this is a comedy and a tragedy at the same time. Okay? Just depends on what part of the story you are in. And so he says, oh, and by the way, Haman, don't neglect any, I loved every detail. I love, did you get this at the end? Don't neglect anything. I, I want the crest, you know, you can put crowns on top of the horse for all I care. I want everybody to know. So he has to decorate up Mordecai. He has to get him dressed. And I think it's just important to pause here. 
I think this is why the pause happens. At times in God's timing, God has you doing the right thing, but we have to be doing it at the right time because at this moment, when you have that first banquet, you think that's the time to ask. No, and God, for whatever reason, puts the pause on Esther. We don't know what happened that made her pause. But what that did was that gave time for Mordecai to not only live, but that gave time for the king to not sleep and gave time for the king then to read the boring minutes and to realize he had never honored Mordecai the way he wanted to and the way for the king's heart to be bent towards Mordecai. See, God uses time. It's all about great timing. I think, again, of the story of Ruth, uh, Old Testament lady whose husband and sons died. Her, her life was miserable. She's living with her mother-in-law, and her mother-in-law said, don't even call me Naomi, call me Mara, call me, call me bitter. I've lost all the men in my life. And Ruth says, I, I'll take care of you. And yet she still works, and with just at the right timing, the owner of the field, when she's gleaning a field, which is what unemployed girls could do at that time, she gleans the edge of a field, and this guy says, I like the work ethic of her, and I think she's kind of cute. Who is she? Her name's Ruth. I'd like to marry her. And his name is Boaz. And Boaz, who's very wealthy, marries Ruth. And Ruth and Boaz will have a son. His name is Jesse. And Jesse will have a son. And his name is David. And David will become king of Israel. My grandson. Think of that. Here you are, you're a widow. And within a couple of generations, your grandson is the king of Israel. And and David will become the lineage for the birth of Jesus, the Savior of the world. It's all because a young widow waited on the Lord, did what she could do, worked the field like she should, trusted God in the midst of it. Moses, again, I, you, you think these are just um, circumstantial happenstance kinds of things. No, Moses is born and they're killing babies. What does his mother do? Moses' mother wraps him up in a little basket, puts a little pitch, a little tar on it, and floats it in the river down in the reeds in this weed section so the baby will live. Pharaoh's daughter goes to bathe, finds this baby. Of course she loves it. She's a teenage girl. She has no idea of the amount of work it takes to have a baby. It's, uh, by the way, if you're a parent and you've got a, a junior high or high school daughter, I, I tell you, the best form of birth control is to have them babysit a baby that's sick. You're just like, oh, what do I do? Ah. Then they'll come home and go, I'm going to go to college. Honest, I'm going to college. This girl didn't have to take care of this baby Moses because she was the daughter to Pharaoh. So she hands him off. Moses gets raised, gets that great education, still believes in the Lord God. It is a, it's a wonderful story. He becomes the one who delivers God's people out of slavery. Happenstance? Couldn't. Not a chance. What if someone else had found that baby in the river? It'd be over for Mo. Over. I think in, in, in not just in ancient history, but in recent history. Think of the timing of it all. Um, a guy by Dory Miller. You know, you know the name guy, black guy, born from, from out of Texas, Waco, Texas, joins the Navy, becomes a mess hall guy on a ship. But he lands on that ship in December 1941, and he's in Pearl Harbor 
that Sunday morning. And his ship gets bombed. And he comes up from the mess hall, and they're being attacked. We are being attacked. And that guy who is a mess hall guy sees the anti-aircraft gun guy is already down. So he drags people to safety and gets them out of the way of uh, more bullets. And then he takes to the gun, and he shoots down aircraft. It's all about the timing because he wasn't supposed to be there. He wasn't trained for it. And that's where you are right now in your faith. You're going, I, I can't do this, Lord. I'm not trained for it. Nor was Dory that day. He just did what he had to do to survive. A year later, Nimitz would put a medal on his chest and he would fight in the war. He would eventually die during World War II. He didn't survive the war. Um, but, but we don't forget him. Oh, by the way, tomorrow, I understand, just learned this this week, tomorrow... The Navy will commission an aircraft carrier, and it'll be named after Dory Miller. Is that cool? So you do the right thing at the right time, even though you're in over your head. The Lord will honor that, and the Lord will see that. And don't worry about your reputation. He could have been uh, scolded for that, right? Because he wasn't trained. He's using equipment he wasn't trained on. Yeah, but, but we're being attacked. I mean, how much worse could it get? And so he did what he had to do, and he didn't worry about his reputation, but his character is what came out. I'm reminded of, of what Peter would write later. Humble yourself before Almighty God, and he will lift you up in due time. He will lift you up. So you address issues of your own character and let the Lord deal the issues of your reputation in the community. So God uses timing. So Haman, Haman has to go find Mordecai, and he has to get a robe on him. And I, I, Walk with me just through this, would you? Think about it for a moment. Haman shows up. He doesn't like Mordecai. He goes, hey, Mordecai, come here. What? You can feel the ice, right? You can feel the coldness. I got, <clears throat> I got, I got to put a robe on you. <laughs> Is this a trick or what? No, it's, I'm supposed to put a robe on you. He puts a robe on him. I need to put a crown on your head. I need to put some chains around you, around your neck. And then I need to get a horse. I have to decorate him. We have to walk around town. Why? Well, the king said, you're the fairest in the land. The text. Can you imagine Haman's demeanor in the midst of this? Because now he has to announce, this is what the, this is what the king loves loves people like this I don't but this is what the king loves can you imagine what that would have been like at the end of the day Haman went home he says to his wife and she's going I saw the pole it's really cute wow he goes it's not going so well hon the king loves Mordecai and uh, the, the tables are turned what's going on in 24 short hours his wife hears what's happening and you can feel her beginning to back away oh my you, you've ticked off the Jew you're not going to get out of this Haman it's as if to say um, remember that watch I got you for Christmas do you still have the receipt because you aren't going to be here much longer and that's the way chapter 6 ends 
chapter 7 opens with this huge reversal. The king goes to the banquet, and as they're, as they're headed to the banquet, and Haman is explaining to his wife how horrible life is, two attendants to the king say, hey, Haman, it's time for the banquet. We have to go. He takes them to the banquet. And, and the king asks the question again, what is it you request? Chapter 7, verse 3. And even up to half the kingdom, and the queen answers, if I found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you to grant me life, this is my petition. And spare my people, that's my request. For I and my people have been sold, into, in, uh, uh, have been sold to be sold to be destroyed and killed and annihilated. If, get this, I find this to be an amazing piece of character. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet. I wouldn't have bothered you if we were slaves. But since this is so much distress, I justified disturbing the king. The king said, who, who is this? He asked, who, who's causing this? What, what law was passed? Because he's not even sure because he's passing laws all the time. Who's the man who did such a dare, daring thing? Verse 6, Esther says, an adversary and an enemy. I hate him, she says. I hate him. It was Haman. At that point, Haman is terrified. He sees the king turn on him. The king has to get up. He's so enraged. He gets up and he has to walk out to the garden. He has to get out of there. He's going to hit somebody. How could you do this to my wife? Haman knows he's in deep trouble. He begins to plead with the queen and she says, you buddy, you dug your own grave, dude. She goes over and sits down on a couch in the palace. He's pleading with her. He jumps onto the couch just as the king comes in. Whoops. Not a good posture to be in. He goes, what are you doing to my wife right now? And at that point, the guards pick him up, and, and it's as if they put the bag over his head and say, you're over. It's done. And one of the attendants says, hey, I just saw a pole outside of Haman's house. <laughs> and the king said, good idea. Take him there. And the very pole that he built for Mordecai is the pole he lands on. That's a terrible story. I mean, a horrible story. Yet, it, what it did was it saved God's people. Now, Esther has to say to the king, we've got to find a way to save the people because you made this law and we can't take back the law. So the king makes another law that says the Jews could defend themselves. And it kind of stopped the violence right there. That's the story of Esther. We'll come back to it next week. But let me give to you some, some takeaways. Number one is this. Seek the favor of God way more than you seek the favor of people. When you're faced with incredible decisions, go to God before you go to people. You notice before she ever talked to the people, she spent three days fasting. It's a great model to us. <clears throat> Secondly, live in such a way that people will listen to you. Live in such a way, and we, you should edit that, live in such a way that when you walk in a room, people like that you've walked into the room. Do you understand this? She could have been killed just walking into the room, and yet three times we hear the king say, Esther, baby, tell me what you want. I'll give it to you up to half the kingdom. When a guy says that three times over the space of a couple of days, I think he means it. 
So live your life in such a way that people value what you say and the people will listen to what you say. We cannot overemphasize the need for integrity. Thirdly, pay attention to God's timing in the midst of this. Live with such sensitivity that you don't rush into the situation because God uses that timing to sort it all out. And then fourth, never lose sight that God can turn the situation around. He's, he can turn it around. It's outside of my league. It's beyond my capabilities. And, and if you've got any, this old song, got any rivers you think are uncrossable? Got any mountains you can't tunnel through? God specializes in things thought impossible. He can do what only he can do. And you see then, God can turn any situation around. He is not just all wise, but he's all powerful and all faithful and, and all sur uh, unsurpassed in his greatness. Therefore, he can take this uncontrolled situation. Therefore, I can see at every hand, at every turn that God is at work. Even when circumstances seem uncontrollable, God is still at work even when it's uncontrollable. And God is still at work even though I can't, who would have ever predicted? Who would have ever predicted the day to turn out like this? Uh, and, and, and God is at work even when the agendas seem to be working against us. And why is that? Because he is the God of the unbelievable kinds of turns in life. He will take your life when it's surrendered to him. And I don't think that we are fully surrendered. Listen to me carefully. I don't think we're fully surrendered until we're fully desperate. And it's in those kind of life and death situations that's when we say, you are almighty and I am not, and I will do whatever, whatever. And you will find at the end of the day, him to be the God of the unbelievable kind of turns in your life. Let's bow together for prayer. And would you stand with me as we pray? Gracious Father in heaven, this is a heavy, heavy story, and yet it is, as heavy as it is, it is that powerful to us. For us to not only to trust you, but to know that you're out for our good, even when our circumstances don't look good. And so we trust you not only on the good days, but our prayer today is to trust you on the bad days and on the impossible days when we see you come through, when no one else could save us, we would say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And that's where we are today. We are saying, blessed be the name of the Lord. How we desperately, desperately need you.